Well, good morning again, Chillicothe Bible Church. I am blessed to lead us into God's Word again in the book of Revelation. And if you want to make your way to chapter 15, I will give you a hint uh, as to where we're all headed in this book. Um, if you were to join my family uh, in our living room uh, watching TV over the course of a week, uh, you would see some pretty strong uh, tendencies in the kind of shows that we like. Uh, if you are a Hollywood screenwriter watching this, can't imagine that you are, but, um, but if you're a Hollywood screenwriter and you're watching this, and you come up with a show featuring an eccentric, an eccentric British detective who solves crimes while he renovates houses and participates in a singing and dancing competition, all of the horns are here for it. We are down for that show, right? And I think that what we love about all of these shows, I think there's, if you can, if you, as diverse as those might seem on the surface, I think that what we love about them are the, the, the echoes of the gospel, if you will allow me to explain, that you see in them. In the crime dramas that we watch, we see, uh, we see evil defeated. And, you know, you get to see the perp walk at the end, right? Uh, where, the, where the murderer or the thief or whoever is captured and put in jail and righteousness is upheld, right? You get to see the beginning of these uh, singing and dancing competitions, you know, where, where it's pretty rough in the beginning, Right? And you go, ooh, I don't know about that. You know, that, ooh, that, that note was really flat. And uh, ooh, uh, that woman has two left feet and so forth. Um, and, uh, and you watch, and then over the course of the season, there's a transformation, and it goes from rough to beautiful by the end. And at the same, in the same way, I, I'm down for the house reno shows. Those are my favorite things. Uh, you know, house reno shows, like uh, anything where you take some hunk of junk and transform it into something, right? Like the motorcycle restoration, forged in fire, uh, you know, house renovation. I'm there for all of those things. And I think the reason why is this, is that in every one, there's a very similar story arc. They take something that is absolute junk and they make it, make out of it something beautiful. Right? So I've watched almost every episode, I think, of Fixer Upper with Joanna Gaines, right? Where they take this, this place and they turn it into something amazing. I've seen every episode of Good Bones. I've seen uh, a whole bunch of hometown down in Laurel, Mississippi. Like I, I see these people do these things and I go, wow. Like I want to buy a house in Laurel and have these people do it for me. This is amazing, right? And, and every time that they, they go into one of these houses, they start by tearing down a bunch of stuff. You notice that? They tear out all kinds of stuff. They, they tear out bad plumbing, and all the cabinets in the kitchen come out, and, and they start busting holes in walls and you know ripping out termite damage and dry rot and mildew and funk. And the roof comes off sometimes. And sometimes I'm sitting there going, you know, it would have been cheaper to just knock this house down and start over. And that's the home builder in 
in my uh, family talking, right? I've been on enough job sites with my dad that I go, yeah, they got about $5,000 in framing left, but they've got $20,000 in demo work that they've done, that they've spent, right? And they, But they take this thing that's absolutely been wrecked and they take out everything that is corrupted and tainted and and termite-eaten, and mildewed, and moldy, and so forth. And they rip all of that out. And then they bring in something completely new. And restore it. And at the end of the show, you see the transformation. Amen? Now in that, there is a very strong echo of the gospel. Because what does God do? God takes people who are ruined and tainted and corrupted by sin and He rips out of us all of that mess. And sometimes it does feel like ripping it out. Amen? But He takes it out of us. And he makes us something new and beautiful. Something which brings glory to himself. And God doesn't just do it with people. God will also do it, the book of Revelation tells us, with the entire world. And if you'll forgive me the analogy, what God is doing in the book of Revelation is engaged in about a seven-year-long demolition process of turning the world upside down so that he can make it new again. Ripping out and destroying everything corrupted and tainted by sin and evil and destroying it all so that a new world can be born, the home of life. It's an amazing thing that God wants to do and God will do in the world. And if you look at Revelation chapter uh, chapter 15 and chapter 16 that we're going to see today, you'll see the culmination of this process at work as God in his justice destroys a sin-tainted world in the, on the way creating something entirely new. And this event, these, this, this series of events that are really part of one event called the Day of the Lord. You see this day referred to uh, throughout the scriptures, the Day of the Lord. You see it in Hebrews chapter 10 verses uh, 24 and 25 where it says, you know, let, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another in all the more as you see the day approaching. The day. What day is that? The day of the Lord. The day when God will destroy every corrupted, sin-tainted, wicked, thing and person on the way to bringing about a new world and a restoration 
of things back to the way they should have been in the beginning, but this time they will be better than they were. Revelation ends better than Genesis begins. And it is an amazing transformation. We're going to see uh, part of, a big part of this process, which is, if you will, the demolition of our corrupted world on the way to this restoration. So uh, we're going to look at chapter 15 and chapter 16. I know that's a lot of text, uh, but I would encourage you to, to stand if you're able as I read God's word, that we honor God's word. Um, so if you'd stand. This is how Revelation chapter 15 begins. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the songs of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests, and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice in the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar say, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of the beast. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. 
for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we read these words, and they sober us, and we find them hard. Father, I pray that you would help us to see them from your perspective as the indication that you will not always allow sin and evil to reign, but that there is a day coming when all that is corrupted and wicked will be destroyed before you bring your kingdom, before righteousness can be established, wickedness must be uprooted. Father, we pray that we would see things in that light, and we would live in light of them from this. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, if you look closely at the first four verses of chapter 15, uh, what you will see are some amazing sights. Uh, the first thing that we see are seven angels bearing the seven last plagues that God will bring on the earth. Uh, with them, it says, the wrath of God is finished. When these plagues are finished, there will be no more judgment on, that will fall on the earth. With them, the tribulation will end because after they are done, Christ returns. Now, I understand that Christ doesn't return in the context of this book until chapter 19. But what you see between the, chapter, the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 19 is the aftermath of what happens in 15 and 16. Uh, with these judgments, God's judgment is finished. Everything is wrapped up and concluded at the end of uh, of chapter 16, and then you get a little more explanation as to what has occurred uh, in uh, 17, 18, beginning of 19. What's going on here? Uh, when these plagues are finished, the seven years of the tribulation and God's judgment will end and God's kingdom will begin. And the, and the next thing that we see in the chapter here in, verse 15, in chapter 15 is pretty fascinating stuff. You see these people and they are described as victorious 
and they stand next to this pavement. Uh, this pavement that you see described, it says, is like something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now, this is described in several places in Scripture. Uh, it's described in Exodus when the elders of Israel go with Moses up on the mountain and they see God enthroned and they see a pavement underneath him. Uh, you see it show up a couple times in Revelation. There's evidently this, this jewel-like um, surface that sits underneath the throne of God. And standing next to it are these people. And they are referred to as those who were victorious over the beast, that who have conquered him. But wait a minute. How did they do that? How did they do that? Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, tells us how you gain victory in the tribulation period. And it is not the way that you think. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their own lives even unto death. How do you get to be one of the victorious ones? One of the ones who conquers the beast? Very simply, you put your trust in Jesus. That's essential. The blood of the Lamb must cover you. How does the blood of the Lamb cover you? By putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Then His death covers your sin and you become one of God's people. And you are one of those, if, you, if this happens during the tribulation period, uh, you are one of these victorious people if you testify to the reality of your faith by going to your death proclaiming Christ rather than bow down before the beast. Amen? So, how do you get to be one of these people? Very simple. You get martyred for your testimony about Jesus and the fact that you would rather die than, than put um, even the slightest credence in the idea that the beast is anything like Jesus. I will not bow down before him. I will not take his mark. I will not be part of his kingdom. I won't do it. And during the tribulation, the law will be you either worship this man as king and bow down before his image and receive his mark, or we will put you to death. And these are the people who will say, I would rather die. They are like Daniel as his, his three friends, remember that scene? I love that scene. In Daniel chapter 3, Daniel's three friends stand before Nebuchadnezzar who has erected this image, and, they, and the king says, we're going to play some music, and when the music plays, you bow down and you worship my statue. And if you don't, we put you to death in the fiery furnace. And the music plays and everybody bows down, and Daniel's three friends are the only guys still standing there. <laughs> so they're real obvious. They go, hey, who are those three guys? Bring them up here. They bring them up. Hey, maybe you guys are slow on the uptake, but let me make it very clear. 
when the music plays, you bow down. And if you don't, we're going to throw you in the furnace and no God will be able to save you from my hand. Remember what they say. God, we, we you, oh King, you, you need to understand this, that the God that we serve is able to save us from your hand. But even if he does not, we will not bow down before this idol that you have set up. And they go into the furnace and they were victorious. The same thing is said of these, of these who are around the throne of God, that they are victorious even in their God saved Daniel's friends. He also saved these. Amen? Different way. Because they are with God around his throne. Their death looked like defeat, but was it? No. It's interesting that they're described as playing the harps of God. I don't know what that means. I don't know if the harps of God include like the banjo the mandolin, the stand-up bass, the guitar, uh, you know, the accordion. You know, I don't know what it, what the harps of God necessarily includes, right? Um, but I do know that they make music before the Lord, and what they sing, we're told. They were told, first of all, that they sing the Song of Moses. The Song of Moses is in Exodus chapter 15. And it is the song that all of the people of Israel are taught by Moses after they cross the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is drowned by the same water that saved them. And it includes these words, the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. It's a celebration of their deliverance and God's justice on those who oppressed them. Right? And it says they sing the song of the Lamb. That song of the Lamb is the new song sung by the saints in Revelation chapter 5, where they sing about worthy are you to open the scroll. And then they also, they combine those songs and they sing some new stanzas about great and amazing are your deeds, just and true are your ways, king of the nations. Who will not fear you and glorify your name? For you alone are holy and all nations will worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. They are celebrating and giving praise to God for his universal rule and for his justice. The fact that he is going to vindicate them in what they have suffered. They've suffered martyrdom, but God is going to stand with them and stand up for them and vindicate them just as he did the people of the Exodus generation who brought judgment, you know, God brought judgment on Pharaoh's entire army. And the same people who oppressed Israel were destroyed by the same water that saved them. And these people are giving praise to God because the unrepentant wicked will finally at long last, get what is coming to them. And that's honestly, that is the subject of the remainder of chapter 15 and all of chapter 16 is God deciding that the time has come 
to bring a complete destruction of the entire wicked world and all of the people on it who are not repentant, who have not put their trust in Jesus, whose lives are not covered by the blood of the Lamb. And God sends out his angels, and as he does so, uh, he sends these angels with the seven last judgment, and as he does so, smoke fills the temple. That's interesting little detail that he gives there. Because you see that smoke filling the temple whenever God's glory is manifested. Uh, when Moses built the tabernacle and dedicated it, smoke filled the tabernacle and Moses was un unable to enter it in there. Uh, when, uh, when Solomon dedicated the temple, smoke filled the sanctuary as the glory of God pervaded that place. As Isaiah saw the Lord's glory, in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, the angels' voices uh, shook the foundations of the temple and the temple sanctuary was filled with smoke. And here, as God's judgment is going out and His glory is being revealed, the, the heavenly temple is filled with smoke because God's glory and His power are being revealed. And the, the angels go forth one at a time and they... The, the kind of dishes that they are pouring out of are the kind you can't pour a little bit at a time. It's just emptied. It's just emptied all at once. And the first one causes painful and harmful sores on everyone who took the beast's mark. And this is, God's justice is poetic in all of these things. All those who took the mark of the beast thought that by doing so, if I receive this mark, then I will save my life. Because the choice was between receiving this mark and losing my life. And so I'm going to receive this mark. And so God says, you like markings? Very well. I will put some on you. And he gives painful sores over their body. You thought you would escape suffering. Now you are suffering because of the mark you take. Second bowl turns the sea to something like blood. It's most likely a massive worldwide red tide. A red tide is what happens when uh, there's a certain species of algae. They're called dinoflagellates. And what happens when they reproduce on a massive scale is that the big mass of them, uh, it does turn the sea red. And, um, and the, the massive reproduction of these algae produces a neurotoxin, a nerve poison, that kills everything that comes into contact with it. And this will, you know, Karen and I have actually seen this. We were down at Sanibel Island a few years ago at the beach, and we happened to be there during a red tide. And uh, the beach was great. We had fun, and we ate seafood, and it was glorious. Uh, we had an, an, just a really enjoyable time there. But, but, you, but as you walk around certain spots on the beach, you'd find dead fish washed up on the beach, and, and you're not supposed to swim in the water because it's kind of funky and it so that nerve toxin can actually have an effect on you 
of a human being, and it's it's a bad scene, right? But this is worldwide, worldwide. All of the sea life dies all at once. In addition to that, the third bowl turns the fresh water into something like blood as well, and there is no water to drink. The angel of the who is in charge of the waters says this is a just judgment because the wicked of the world have shed the blood of God's prophets and God's people. Remember that by this time in the tribulation there will be millions of people martyred for their faith in Jesus and God's two witnesses will have just been executed. The people who come that God sends that are like Moses and Elijah are killed and their bodies left to rot in the street for three and a half days. And God sends this judgment and the angel says it is just because you are a world that has loved to drink in the blood of God's prophets and saints and therefore you can have blood to drink. Even the altar of God cries out that this is a just The fourth bowl increases the heat of the sun. What do you want most when it's hot? A drink of water. And there won't be any. And this, the, the sun increases in its heat so that people are scorched. I don't know in the tribulation exactly what kind of impacts on the environment that there are, but, but suffice to say when all of the water around the earth is undrinkable and everything in it is dead. And when uh, there have been earthquakes and, and meteors and so forth falling from the heavens for the last seven years, that the environment of the earth has changed. And so people are now scorched by the heat. The environmental changes are severe. Uh, and, and you can think of Revelation, the first uh, roughly 19 chapters of it, as something like an anti-Genesis. In the first two chapters of Genesis, God spends seven days making the earth entirely suitable and ideal for humans to live there. And in this book, God spends seven years undoing all of that, and making it entirely unsuitable. For humans to live there on the way to renewing it and recreating it entirely. The fifth plague is the plague of darkness everywhere that the beast rules. The beast, remember, is, the, is Revelation's name for this figure known elsewhere in the Bible as the Antichrist, who sets up a counterfeit kingdom with himself as, as Messiah and King. And God says, okay, fine, you like that? Let me give it to you. And you, you want to live in the darkness morally? I'll let you live in the darkness physically. And everywhere that the beast rules, which is all over the earth except where God's people are, there's darkness. This is very much like the ninth plague that fell on Egypt. Where there's darkness that can be felt. And it increases their anguish. And in fact, the combination of the fourth 
bowl of judgment, and the fifth one is, if you will, a preview of hell, where there is both scorching heat and darkness. And you'll notice at the end of both of those plagues as they fall, what does it say? They did not repent. In other words, they didn't turn away from their sin and to the Lord and put their trust in Jesus as a means of escape from their judgment. They would rather have judgment than Jesus even as it falls on them. Think about that. People often think, well, if God would just do something really dramatic, then people would put their trust in Jesus. But the answer many times is that they won't. That the cost of their rebellion against God can get very, very high, and they would rather have judgment than Jesus. Because that would require them to humble themselves and to recognize that they are not king of the world or even of their own life and yield themselves to one who is. They don't repent. The sixth plague causes the Euphrates River to dry up and, it, and, and three evil spirits go forth like frogs from the unholy trinity of the beast, the false prophet, and Satan himself, the dragon. And they go out and they gather all the kings of the east to go for one final battle. I think what's happening here is this that as God is working and bringing redemption uh, to the people of Israel and through the people of Israel, Satan has the recognition that, hey, judgment is ramping up and the people of Israel are still around and God is going to try to keep his promises to these people and bring this kingdom he's been promising. But there is one way we can stop that. If we can just invade Israel with enough people, we can kill them all. And then God will have no one left to whom we can, he can keep his promises of a kingdom and a nation that is restored. And so it will be an attempt at a final holocaust of the Jewish people. And they will gather at the place uh, that is called in Hebrew Har Megiddo, which means the mountain of Megiddo. It's a place uh, that is... There's no specific mountain named that in Israel, but there is a region called Megiddo, and it is in the valley of Esdralon, or what is called elsewhere in Scripture, called the Valley of Jezreel. And it is a massive plain surrounded on all sides by mountains. And, and these massive armies will gather there on their way to try to destroy the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and all of God's people who are gathered there. And in the, in the middle of that, we get an exhortation to all God's people who are alive at that time not to give up, not to, uh, not to be found, the text says, not to be found naked and exposed. Because the temptation, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ in these days, is to just act as if 
all, look at how bad things are getting. I guess the Lord is not coming. I guess he must not be coming because look at how bad things are getting. But this book is written for two audiences. It's written for the church prior to this time to encourage us and exhort us uh, that Jesus is coming, that he, that he is going to win, and that we are going to reign with him. But it's also written for these specific people who will go through these days. And there are sprinkled throughout the book a number of places that are encouragement, I think, specifically for them. That look, as bad as things are going to be, don't forget, Jesus is still coming. Jesus is still coming. Live your life as if he's coming because he's coming. And in fact, you're almost to the end. And you don't want to be embarrassed before God when he's right at the door. He's right at the door. Years ago, uh, when Karen and I were young married, uh, we, had, we had gotten all the kids to bed and it was about, I think it was about 8.30 at night. And my boss and his wife and uh, my secretary and her husband, my duck hunting buddies, uh, came to the house. Now, I should tell you that at this time of night, uh, I was sitting downstairs with Karen in a pair of boxer shorts and a t-shirt. And she was in her nightgown. And our house at the time that we owned had stairs that went right by the front door. And they were on our front porch at 8.30. They had not called to tell us they were coming. They thought that having brought Dairy Queen, that this would make it okay to drop by unannounced. Okay? Karen looks at me. The doorbell's ringing. They're knocking on the door. I, I go up the basement stairs. I look and I said, it's Steve and Gerald and Cheryl and Barb. What are we going to do? She goes, you're the man. Go get pants and bring me something. <laughs> right? So what do I do? I went and got pants and brought her some clothes that I threw down the basement stairs. Right? Uh, and uh, it was a real moment, right? I, I did not want to be seen naked and exposed. And yet there I was, right? And then I, I began to chastise my boss and my secretary on Monday when I saw them next and said, you know, you should have called. <laughs> it would have been nice if you had let us know you were coming. We could have been prepared for your arrival. He said, this is Iowa. We never call. We just show up. And I said, not to my house. <laughs> anyway, about two weeks later, it's what? They came back. And I had to do the same thing. But they didn't return a third time. Uh, they had learned their lesson, apparently, right? But the, the encouragement here is the same. That the Lord could return at any time. And you do not want to be found in a state where you would be embarrassed to be seen. Amen? You would not want to be found in a state where you would be embarrassed to have the Lord see you in that condition. 
Finally, the, the seventh angel pours out the seventh bowl, which results in lightning and thunder and a massive earthquake such as has never happened before and never will happen again. It will split Jerusalem, here called the great city, into three parts. The world capital of the Antichrist, here called Babylon, will be overthrown in a moment, along with all of the other cities of the world. They will all be knocked flat by this earthquake. What kind of an earthquake is this? A big one. I think that is a safe statement. Amen? It will knock flat all of the cities of the world in one moment. And Jerusalem itself will be the only one standing, but it will be split into three parts. And every kingdom that has existed apart from God's kingdom will be overthrown. In fact, all of the islands of the world will disappear because an island is an undersea mountain. And every mountain across the world will be made flat. In fact, this is the fulfillment of what, of what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40, that at the coming of Messiah, every valley will be lifted up and every high place brought low. This will be the moment when that occurs. And the idea, I think, will be to make it possible, make it easier for worldwide travel. Because there won't be any mountains to cross. There won't be any valleys to go down into and up the other side. It will all be more like a plain. So that you can gather at Jerusalem for worship of the king when he comes. And these giant hailstones will fall, crushing the wicked and putting them to death. And once again, we're told, rather than repent, that the people of the world will curse God. And the falling of these hailstones is, I think, what is described in, at the end of chapter 14 as the treading of the winepress of the grapes of the wrath. Those who oppose the Lord, the kingdom that was erected against God, all of its rulers, all in a moment, will all be overthrown and defeated. Every single one. Now, next week, we will look at some of these judgments in a little more detail and see the aftermath of the overthrow of these wicked rulers and their kingdoms. But in the meantime, I want us to focus on what God is telling us here today in these chapters. First thing he's telling us, and is, is he's telling us consistently throughout the book of Revelation, one of the purposes of this book is to warn those who do not know Christ that judgment and Jesus are coming. Judgment is coming. That the Lord is at the moment forestalling his judgment, but it is coming. And Jesus is returning, and he is returning not to offer himself as he did the first time as a sacrifice for sin and to bring people to repentance, but to bring judgment and to wipe out those who are opposed to his rule.
when these judgments fall, it will be too late to repent. Amen? It will be too late. But there will also, there is also in every person's life a point at which it is too late to repent. In every person's life, that day is coming. It's the day of your death. When are you going to die? I hope when you're an old and frail human being. Amen? But here's what I know. In fact, here's what I've seen this last year. That death can come a lot more quickly than you would think. In fact, I've gotten several reports from friends and other people that I know of someone close to them who died in an instant. One of the guys whose, whose blog I read uh, lost his 20-year-old son when he was a student at college. He was fine, then he was sick, then he was gone within the same day. No diagnosis. 20-year-old kid preparing for ministry as a pastor. Loved the Lord and gone as minister. I have other friends who have buried loved ones from covid I have other friends who have died of cancer. The point is that every single person will one day die, and it could be soon. And after that, after your death, is the moment where you face the Lord. And you will hear one of two things. You will hear either, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come enjoy your master's happiness. Or you will hear, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. And part of the point of these chapters in Revelation is to warn those who may hear the second of those. That there is a choice and there is time yet to repent. To put your trust in Jesus. To turn away from sin as a result of putting your trust in Jesus. And to experience new life and joy and a rich welcome into the kingdom of God's dear Son instead of judgment. And we who are God's people have the, the both the privilege and the responsibility of carrying that warning to people who need to hear it. To say, God loves you. God sent his son for you. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. Remember the fact that Jesus came for you. He loved you so much that He came for you to bring you salvation. But if you will not have Jesus, you will have judgment. If you aren't sure, by the way, as you're sitting here today, where you would go and what you would hear from the Lord's mouth, and I invite you to put your trust in Jesus and to know for sure that what you will hear is welcome home when you stand before God. It's freely available if you put your trust in Christ. In addition to that, keep alert because Jesus' return will come like a thief. We're told that repeatedly throughout the scriptures, throughout the Gospels. Jesus tells us that more than once. He tells us that again here. He tells us at the end of the book again. I'm coming. 
and you don't know when. And you want to live your life now in every moment of every day as if the Lord is returning today. One of my great uncles on my mother's side was a pastor for his whole life. And he retired just a few years ago because his wife got Alzheimer's and he needed to change his ministry from ministering to people in a group to ministering to one particular woman that he had promised his life to. But when I saw him, it was at the funeral of a member of my family, and he was wearing a coat and tie, as he always did, and he was also wearing on his lapel a little trumpet. I asked him, what's with the trumpet? Are you a trumpet player? He's like, no, I'm not. But I know someone who is. And one day there is coming the shout of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And I'm hoping it's today. And he lived his life, still lives his life, as if the trumpet might blow today. And we should do the same. Amen? We don't want to be found like I was before my boss and my secretary, naked and exposed. <laughs> right? We want to live our life as if Jesus could return at any time. Last thing. We need to join with the saints in heaven and with the angels in praising God that his righteousness will one day triumph. You know, many times I think we get confronted by people who are unbelieving and they say things to us like, well, how can you believe in a God of justice? How can you believe in a God of judgment? I don't believe in a God of justice and judgment. I only believe in a God of love. How can you hold to that? That's so retrograde. That's so ridiculous that's so unloving to believe in a God who brings justice and we we sometimes don't know what to say to that and we sometimes feel defensive and we feel like we we need to somehow apologize for God and explain that away well you understand you know God really you know he doesn't love judgment he's not he's not he's not great at judgment you know he's really a God of love he's really a God of redemption and and, you know, judgment is there, but, you know, it's kind of not, you know, not his nature, really. You ever had one of those conversations where you sound like that? Just very apologetic for what Scripture not only clearly teaches, but actually celebrates? And I use that word advisedly because that's exactly what the Scripture does. Not just in this these chapters, but throughout the Scripture, the scripture celebrates the fact that God is a God of justice, a God who brings judgment. Do you know why? Because God is a God of love. And it is because he loves his people that he will not allow wickedness and evil to continue against them on an unlimited basis. Let me ask those of you who are fathers, if you saw your daughter be abused, how long you would wait to bring justice? 
If you saw your spouse, husbands, you saw your wife being mistreated by some random fellow on the street, how long you would wait to bring justice. You mothers, how long before Mama Grizzly comes out? Right? Those of you who those of you who love someone, you protect them. Amen. And you, as far as possible, bring justice and protection and because you love those who, who are close to you. Amen? Is it any wonder that God does the same thing? God, because He loves His people, will not allow the wicked kingdom of Iran to continue to imprison and martyr his people. He will not allow the mullahs and kings of the Middle East to behead and imprison his people for very much longer. He will not allow the Chinese communists to imprison uh, millions of his people in the Lao Gai, the Gulag and torment them and put them in slavery to build flip-flops for export to America very much longer. God will not allow the wicked kingdoms of this world, the wicked people of this world who harm and abuse and sin against His people to continue to do so on an unlimited basis. And that is a praiseworthy attribute. Of God, that He is just, that He rescues, that He brings justice and judgment, and that the world as it is will not always be this way. But there will be a day when righteousness reigns, where sin and evil are destroyed, and we who are God's people, who are loved and protected by Him, will rest as we have never rested in all of human history. I don't know about you, I get tired of the world as it is. I get deeply down in my soul tired of the world as it is. I've said before, I don't watch the news anymore. It depresses me. I'm deeply cynical about politics at every level from whatever party in our country because I have the deep sense that, that whoever comes into power in the Congress or in the, in the state legislature or in the governor's office or in the president's office, that we're going to get whoever that is different corruption than we have now, but still corruption. Because the people who rule us are sinners like us. Amen? There is coming a day when sin and evil will end. And we should praise God for it and look for it and long for it and live each day as if Jesus is coming back and bringing an end to all of this. And in the meantime, make hay while the sun shines and share the gospel with those who need to hear it. 
before judgment comes. Amen? God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have so much to celebrate here at Christmas time. The fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and has done so by the millions and billions. Jesus Christ has come to save and he continues to save until the day when final judgment comes. Father, we're grateful for that. We pray that we would live each day as if it were the day when Christ will return for those of us who belong to him. Father, if there's any here who don't know you yet, I pray that they would know you today and walk with you today and begin to put their trust in you today. That they might find not only escape from judgment, but the joy of knowing you and following you and walking with you day by day. Our Father, we pray and we celebrate all that you are doing, all that you have done, and all that you will do in the future. Father, we give you praise in Jesus' name.